so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Embracing diversity actually leads to the good of all people. When we introduce them to a truer identity, to a deeper sense of belonging, to a greater story in which we can all belong and then begin to flourish. We hear a lot of talk about diversity these days, but few of us have stopped to think about why it really matters. At the ERLC National Conference, Glenn Packiam, in his talk, Race and Human Flourishing, Embracing Diversity for the Good of All People, demonstrates that we champion diversity because God has created us as a diverse people. We hope this message stirs your heart to celebrate God's good design. I was asked to speak on the subject of race and human flourishing, embracing diversity for the good of all people. Now, I want to tackle this topic kind of in three short movements. The first is to explore what we mean by diversity and difference and to look again at the language that we're using to talk about this. And then the second movement is to talk about how the gospel puts us together without erasing our differences or our diversity and puts us together in a way that actually leads us to flourish. And then finally, I want to talk about why why we care about this as Christians, as evangelicals. So if you've got it in your head, there's a what, and then there'll be a how, and then we'll end with a why. But I want to start first with a bit about my story. So I was born in Malaysia, which is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back around, the world being round and all. And uh, Malaysia is a multi-ethnic, multicultural country. It's kind of a melting pot of Southeast Asia, if you will. Uh, there's Chinese, Indians, Malays, who are the indigenous race uh, in Malaysia. And they all live together, mostly in peace. But there's actually much more nuance than just those three categories, okay? For example, if you looked at my parents, you'd say, oh, they're Indian. But actually, they're not. My grandparents, both sides, are both from Sri Lanka. And on my dad's side, they're Tamil. And on my mom's side, they're Sinhalese. Now, this means probably nothing to you. But actually, these differences are are pretty pronounced, significant enough to have led to major tensions between the two groups. In fact, those two ethnicities have been engaged in something of a civil war with each other for decades in Sri Lanka. This was kind of the running joke in my home growing up whenever my mom and dad would have an argument. You know, the war continues. (laughs) But the difference between the differences between my parents actually runs a little deeper. Uh, there's also subtle regional differences. My dad uh, was born in Malaysia, my mom in Singapore, and those two countries, they're neighbors, but they used to be one country called Malaya. And they've been rivals really ever since they split in the 1960s. And then there's religion. 
My father grew up as a Hindu. My mother was raised Anglican. And when they met at the University of Singapore, my mom said, look, I'm not going to marry a non-Christian. And my dad said, okay, I'll convert. It's the most successful evangelistic dating story ever, right? But not just region and religion, there's also the issue of culture. In Malaysia, again, a number of cultures coexist, sort of swirling together, not only from Southeast Asia, but actually from earlier colonial influences. Portuguese arrived first, but it was the British who really left their mark. And in addition to schools and a parliamentary system of government, the British also left behind this fascination with their way of life. My grandpa on my mother's side insisted on ordering his shoes and his cufflinks from a shop in London. My father's family, on the other hand, didn't have any of this fascination. So growing up, even in our own home, I kind of saw how East and West bled on each other, no place more clearly than at the dinner table where we would have pork chops with a side of Chinese chili sauce, a roast chicken with a sprinkle of curry powder, and of course, a side of rice. I'm telling you all this to tell you that race is an inadequate category to speak about difference. In fact, we now understand that race is kind of a contested category, one that is linked to European explorers ranking human beings by the shade of their skin color. This is problematic, to say the least. Race is also inadequate because it can lead us to the wrong conclusions about people. My family moved to Portland, Oregon when I was 10 years old. We lived there for three years. My parents went to a Bible school there. And then we moved back to Malaysia, uh, and, and I was there for the rest of my high school years. And I returned to the States to go to college in that great American epicenter of multiculturalism known as Oklahoma. <laughs> and when I met Holly... The girl who would become my wife, now of over 15 and a half years, she had tan skin, blonde hair, blue eyes, and I thought, she must be a cheerleader from California. I mean, what did I know? And she saw me with my short hair and gold rimmed glasses and argyle sweaters before argyle came in again. And she thought, this is probably a sweet, nerdy, foreign student guy. And I found out that she was actually a farm girl from Iowa. The blonde was mostly highlights. And she discovered that I was a sweet, nerdy, foreign student guy. <laughs> but see, the point remains, we need better language to talk about difference and diversity. Now, when the New Testament wants to give us a picture of the wide sweep of humanity, it actually uses several different words, often in the same sentence or paragraph. Okay, look, for example, at Revelation 7, that great vision of heavenly worship. John writes, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now there's four different words there to speak about diversity. Nation, tribe, people, and language. And each of those means something a little different. The word nation is that Greek word ethnos, which has to do with customs and culture as much as it does with race. Tribe is from the Greek word phule, which has to do with sort of a familial belonging, family or kin. The word for people is laos, which refers to kind of a grouping of people, maybe even particularly a geographical grouping of people. 
And then there's this word language, which refers to the native tongue of a people. I want to point out a couple things about this text. First, these are actually four different ways of speaking about difference. We have different culture and rituals, different family, different grouping or geography, and then different language. We are different from one another, not simply because of color, but because of family stories, sometimes because of language, because of regions that we grew up in, and often because of customs and rituals. This, I think, is a much richer way of speaking about diversity. But secondly, these are also four different ways of talking about belonging. Our rituals, our family, our geography, our, our, our language has a way of providing a sense of belonging. I, I see this when my friends who are from the South return to the region and all of a sudden they want fried pickles and grits. It's a way of feeling like they're home again. These rituals show us how we belong. All of this gives us a better understanding and a better vocabulary for talking about diversity and difference. Now, the question is, how does the gospel fit together people who are different and diverse? Paul writes to the Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. Now, oftentimes, this text is used to say, oh, who cares? There's no such thing. Let's be colorblind, let's pretend we're all the same. But this is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. In fact, if you track his argument in Galatians, Paul is saying that Gentiles don't need to give up Gentileness and take on Jewishness in order to be in Christ. He drives this point home with particular poignancy when he's talking about circumcision. The gospel does not erase our differences and make us bland or vanilla or neutral. The gospel actually takes our differences and our different ways of belonging and gives us a truer identity and a deeper sense of belonging that somehow fits together people who otherwise would not be together. Fits together people who remain distinct and diverse and yet would not otherwise be together if not for Christ. This is how embracing diversity actually leads to the good of all people. When we introduce them to a truer identity, to a deeper sense of belonging, to a greater story in which we can all belong and then begin to flourish. But now the final question is the question of why. Why would we do this? Why as evangelicals are we motivated to care about embracing and fitting together diversity and difference? It's not simply for the good of humanity. Because we are not, at the core, simply lovers of humanity. We're lovers of God. And I would like to suggest to you tonight that actually the reason we care about this is ultimately for the glory of God. Now this is an event about the sanctity and dignity of life. This is about evangelicals coming together to affirm the dignity of every life from the womb to the tomb. We ground this in the Imago Dei. We're going to hear image of God in Genesis 1 over and over again this weekend. We get that. But you know what? I don't think we move very often from creation to resurrection. I don't think we think enough about 
Revelation and not just Genesis. Remember John's vision? We just read this, right, in Revelation. What do we see when we see through John's eyes? We see people from every language, geography, culture, family, joining in one voice around the throne to worship God. I want to say two things about this. The first is that differences don't disappear in heaven. They don't disappear in heaven. This is a vision not of heavenly souls floating on clouds and playing harps. This is a vision of people. And as Christians, we not only believe in creational goodness, that every person is made in the image of God, but we also believe in the hope of resurrection. The Nicene Creed, the only confession of faith that is affirmed by every stream of the church, ends with this phrase, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. See, it isn't just that souls matter, it's that bodies matter. How else does John see tribe and tongue and people and nation? And think about this. If bodies matter, that means our differences of identity and belonging matter. It means that these differences are not the result of the fall. Now, to be sure, some of our divisions and differences are. But differentiation itself is part of the beauty of creation So much so that it's significant enough for God to redeem in resurrection bodies. Now, until we recognize that bodies matter, we actually will not be able to think correctly about race and culture and gender. As long as we keep being fixated on souls as evangelicals, we will miss the beautiful design of creation and the glorious hope of resurrection. The second thing I want to say about this vision is that our differences matter because of the way it leads to the glory of God. This scene that John sees in Revelation 7 is a worship scene. You see, when people from different families of origin and languages and geography and cultures are redeemed and brought together, fitted together in Christ, a symphony of praise arises to God. And that's why I think in some ways... If I may be so bold as to say this, in some ways saying that we care for the unborn and the immigrant and the refugee because we are pro-life is kind of selling it short. The truth is we're in this because we're pro the glory of God. We're pro the glory of God. We want God to be glorified by a chorus of the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and language. That's why we're in this. This is, after all, why diversity was built into creation in the first place, to reflect down into the world the beauty of the Lord and to reflect back up to heaven the glory of the Lord. Every life matters because every life has the capacity to bring glory to God. Every time the church welcomes the stranger with Christ-like hospitality, stands in solidarity with the oppressed, cultivates a real relationship of mutuality with people who are different from us, we become a sign in this world of the world to come. I'm going to tell you a story about our church. On election night, the elders of New Life Church, the church where I serve as a pastor and as one of the elders, we voted coincidentally on election night to merge 
with the largest Spanish-speaking congregation in Colorado Springs. The merger had actually been in discussion for weeks. It came about because our senior pastor, Pastor Brady Boyd, had gone to speak at a midweek service at this Spanish-speaking congregation. And after the service, the pastor of this Spanish-speaking congregation, Pastor Jeremias Tamares, had shared how alone he felt and how he longed for a kind of covering and partnership. And something happened in Pastor Brady's heart that night that led to the elders voting on election night. Now, it was just a regularly scheduled elders meeting, but I think it was a prophetic act. The next morning, I texted Pastor Jeremias to see how he was doing. He said his phone was blowing up from, with texts and calls from congregants worried about their future based on the results. But he said that Sunday, he announced the news of the merger and the congregation erupted. Because all of a sudden, they felt they were no longer alone. Whatever the future was going to hold for them, they knew we are their brothers and sisters. And they are our brothers and sisters, and we were going to be in this together. We are quite literally one church. You see, when our pro-life framework is shaped not only by Genesis, but also by Revelation, when we affirm not only the beauty of creation, but also the hope of resurrection, when people from every family and language and geography and culture find a truer identity and a deeper belonging that fits them together with one another in Christ, and they begin to flourish and come truly alive, then God who is the creator and the redeemer, is glorified by a resounding chorus of praise reverberating around the throne in heaven. And so tonight we echo a refrain that the church has said and sung throughout the centuries. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. For more information, visit ERLC.com. And be sure to tune in next week as we hear another message about living as Christians in our cultural climate.